Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and this week we're going to be talking about something really fun, and that is fungi. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how someone can grow mushrooms for food or medicine, and we're going to be talking with the folks that operate Rot Glow Farm, where they grow mushrooms in the forest. But first, this podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. Do 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 do. People need ordering principles. Twelve Rules for What is a podcast about fascism and the far right from the perspective of the left. It's obviously great stuff, but don't take our word for it. Here is a word from our sponsor. I'm Jordan Peterson. Now that I have been injected with the anti-fascist super soldier serum, I renounce all my rubbish beliefs about hierarchies and the distribution of sex and dedicate my life, my soul, to the 12 rules for what podcast. So that's 12 rules for what? A podcast about the far right. Get it anyway, get your podcasts. 12 rules And we're back. Um, thanks, y'all, so much for coming on to the podcast today. Would you like to introduce yourselves with your uh, name, pronouns, and the farm that y'all are both part of, and uh, just tell us a little bit about about that project? Sure. Uh, my name is B. My pronouns are they, them, and we are a part of Rocklow Farm, and our farm is in Mississippi, um, pretty close to New Orleans, about an hour and a half away. Yeah, I'm M and uh, he, they, and yeah, we've been farming here in uh, southwestern Mississippi for three years. Cool. Cool. And could y'all tell us a little bit about like what, like what is Rotglow Farm and what do y'all, what do y'all do there? So we're primarily a mushroom farm and tree nursery. We grow uh, quite a bit of shiitake mushrooms uh, outdoors on logs which we take to market and the most of the sales from the shiitakes goes into basically subsidizing this tree nursery that we have where we grow thousands of trees and give them away in New Orleans and rurally in Mississippi. Cool. Cool. Like how did y'all get involved in in doing this? For me, several years ago I read that book, Mushroom at the End of the World, which was kind of a life-changing book for me. And that got me really excited about uh, mushrooms generally and fungi. That first manifested by growing shiitakes in New Orleans as part of like a backyard gardening practice. And then when the pandemic happened, some of us had been part of this project in New Orleans called Lobelia Commons, uh, which is this... Uh, we define it as like a uh, network for food autonomy and neighborhood survival. In that project, we started a collaborative mushroom group where we'd kind of learn together how to produce mushrooms, which would fit into a wider network of ways of producing food in the city. So the way that first manifest was doing oyster mushrooms, uh, workshops to do oyster mushrooms in buckets at a decent size, at a, at a decent scale, and we then also started doing some production on logs. Then, wanting to scale that up a bit, we're interested in uh, growing shiitakes in the forest north of New Orleans. So then we started growing out here in. Uh, southern Mississippi um, and yeah that's how I got here. B how did you uh, start to like what what got you interested in in mushroom farming? Yeah so where I was living before I was involved in mutual aid programs and just living in a place for a while and feeling sort of stagnant and feeling like the work that we were doing was great and 
impactful, but it, I just, I think my heart wasn't in it. It felt more like a job, like going to my mutual aid job. And it felt more like charity than it did like actually connecting um, with people in a way that felt uh, horizontal. And um, I had a big life event and had to leave where I was living at um, and started to get involved with the Gulf South region um, through hurricane relief after Ida. And so I was connecting more with people in this area and met M a few years prior and M and I were getting closer as friends and starting to meet more people who were doing this work that to me felt more aligned with my interests and my value system and also just something that I was really fascinated by and the mushroom farming was an aspect of that and like M said prior it helped us subsidize that we do and the nursery growing that we do and some of these other projects that we're involved in um and it felt sort of like a natural progression for myself because years prior i had used to, i used to live in central california and had a fair amount of experience just walking through the woods and foraging mushrooms um, that were wild and talking with budding mycologists and it where I was living before, it was sort of like a casual culture um, of mushroom uh, interest that people had. And so there's like a annual fungi fair that happens every year um, in the area I was living before. And so I guess I had never really considered farming mushrooms and, and was already starting to cultivate that here. And once I was introduced to it, it felt like this really exciting thing that yeah, it just kind of fell into my lap in this way that was like, oh yeah, of course, that's what I'm doing now, you know? And yeah, like I said before, it's it's not it's not disconnected from anything else that we do. It feels really interconnected and that's what also makes it feel regenerative and worthwhile, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally. And I guess maybe this is, maybe this is a silly question, but... um like why why mushrooms as opposed to like any like any other like food or like medicine thing that you could grow um so uh partially the the land that we inhabit here is a successionary uh forest it's very young everything around us is pine plantation mostly loblolly pine we have a lot of like loblaw here and a lot of um, young sweet gums, young oaks. Uh, and in some first, like in some ways, the only way to farm at all here, we would have to clear some woods. So on the one hand, it's practical because we also would like to grow large amounts of trees. So we can't grow trees in the middle of the forest, but we could, but it would take a very long time and it wouldn't be like really effective towards getting them in the hands of the people who want to plant trees. Uh, so we cleared some of the forests to uh, have that nursery and small garden and, uh, you know, meet, meeting some local needs. So with those trees, the sweet gums and the oaks in particular, we turn them into mushroom bolts is what they're called, uh, like logs basically. But I think beyond that, I think mushrooms are just like an extremely fascinating uh, subject. They're like, unlike anything else that you eat, I think uh, they have something that's kind of like indescribable or like uh, uncanny. Uh, and I think when you get into conversations with people, especially like we're, we're often at farmer's markets, there's a way of finding, especially rurally, like who the like kind of like secret freaks are and like the, <laughs> you know, the, the like people, you know, it's really hard to find each other out here. Um, and mushrooms, I think, is like kind of a little like wink, wink 
in some ways. And I think that that's been uh, a big asset for us. We've met a few people through farmers markets like that. Um, yeah. That's... Like, like mushrooms is like more farming mushrooms is more common, like for like people that you might feel like more like the like true freaks or something or I, I think not even just farm I and mean, if they're definitely farming but uh <laughs> i think in, a, in like in a good way and a bad way yeah, um, yeah yeah there's definitely some uh mushroom farmers who are like maybe not freaks we'd like to like hang out with uh on a lovely saturday night uh but uh i think the type of people that are drawn to are like going into the woods getting down and like looking Mm-hmm. at the earth very close um and that these like, super tiny things um or sometimes like really phallic things uh or you know what in all the all the forms yeah slimy stinky slimy. like yeah <laughs> voluptuous like disgusting all of the yeah the brackets of yeah nice pun. signifiers <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and like yeah right like you said it takes a certain kind of attention and careful consideration and uh observation where you're getting down yeah on your hands and knees and just like you're there's this one particular i can't remember what it's called but it's a there's this yeah there's this one type of mushroom that grows just on magnolia uh the just the cones of magnolia trees and it's really teeny tiny and you would never think to look for it if you didn't know it was there. And there are just so many species of mushrooms that are hidden. If you just look a little bit closer on the bark of a pine tree, it's this microscopic guy that just exists like in this one area or yeah, there's just so many numerous um, species like that, that are fascinating to to look at and to think about in so many species that are being discovered all the time. And then also just the, the queerness of mushrooms is fascinating and really interesting to think about um, when we're thinking about the way things are reproducing and um, sex, like biological sex and how there's like, what's the one that has- Schizophilum common. Yeah, it has how many different yeah. sexes? The it's common like, name is uh, uh, common split gill, and it has, I think it's like 23,000 different uh, distinct sexes. So like, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> super wild. Um, and it, you'll see it everywhere. It grows pretty much in full sun to like deep shade uh, on all kinds of um, dead wood. And the reason why it grows everywhere, right, is because of how promiscu- promiscuous it is and how adaptive it is. And so that's like part of its ability to reproduce so successfully is because of the wide diversity of sex that it's able to um, inhabit. Yeah, I think it's something like any one individual uh, of that fungus can reproduce with like, it's like 96% or 98% of all total of that species, of all the total individuals of that species, um, which is so cool. Yeah. And that's just what, you know, that's just one particular grouping. When you start to go through them, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's infinite. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um, I've, I've heard that in, like in the Southeast that, like old, old growth gets talked about a little bit differently than like on the West coast, for example, where like, um, like an old growth forest has like more to do with the amount of fungal interactions that are going on than it has to do with like the size or the age of the trees necessarily. Is that, is that true? It's, it's, uh, that might be, I might not be totally qualified to answer to that, <laughs> but, cool. uh, it, it <laughs> My my inclination is that that's a uh, glass half full way of looking at the situation with southeastern forests, which unfortunately the southeastern longleaf pine forests, which are you know amazing and unfortunately like o- exist only in 
fractions of fractions of fractions of its former glory. Um, like, you know, often gets compared, like the type of biodiversity that gets compared to um, the Amazon rainforest. Um, and I think a lot of that is in the soil, um, mm -hmm. like particular, particularly uh, the Rusaleles, the uh, Rushala or Rusala yeah. um, is extremely diverse in the Southeast. Um, and uh, that's, that's a uh, mycorrhizal uh, mushroom that you'll often see. It's like kind of the one that is, uh, has a brittle cap, uh, often red caps, but has quite a diverse um, array of colors, green, purple, blue, I think there's even a yellow, um, but um, yeah. And that's just the name one, obviously there's uh, quite a lot. Cool, cool. Um, to switch to switch gears a little bit, um, it it seems like maybe it's like a practical decision since y'all live in a forest. But like, why why kind of doing like forest farming, like as as opposed to like like it, um, I, I guess I don't know how people normally grow mushrooms, but like, yeah, is is there something that's different about forest farming for for y'all than like how a lot of people might go about cultivating mushrooms. So, yeah. So if you're growing mushrooms outdoors, you could probably have a very elaborate way of creating shade and humidity and the kinds of things that you need in order to grow mushrooms on logs. But it just makes sense because you're, as a, as a person who's growing mushrooms on logs, you're, in some ways you're replicating what would be occurring in the wild and how those mushrooms would be occurring on decomposing wood um, or logs in the wild. And so it sort of does the work for you. Of, I mean, it, you're, you're already in a forest. So instead of um, putting that in an indoor setting, which a lot of people do this, well, they'll they'll have, you know, a sterile, often sterile environment indoors. Um, they'll have bags of mushrooms. And I don't know that much about it because I, I don't do it myself. But from what I've um, read about it and talked to people about it, 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 you're able to really dial in the exact conditions that these mushrooms would need to produce. Um, whereas in an outdoor setting, um, you're exposed to whatever kinds of temperature increases or decreases and you're exposed to um, the seasons and you know if there's a drought that year or whatever it is and so the forest um, is going to help maintain the environment that you're going to need to be able to grow those mushrooms does that yeah sum I, it up I don't know I think I think uh I would, I would add like a question that we get asked a lot, but especially by other farmers, whether or not they're um, mushroom farmers, is that they'll ask what our acreage is, um, which doesn't matter. You know, like <laughs> if you have any amount of space and you have a, a, a way to make shade and you're not just sitting on concrete, you can grow mushrooms outdoors pretty much. So that one doesn't matter, but they often ask like, why, uh, why don't you, I'm sure you can get a grant, why don't you, um, why don't you put in um, like an indoor space uh, or like a warehouse, you know, you've got plenty of space to put in a warehouse. And it's like, okay, you have to like <laughs> just clear cut a bunch of forests where mushrooms are already happening. Fungi are everywhere. <laughs> just to, you know, raise, you know, in their perfect condition, very have the perfect condition. Right. <laughs> um, it's just like, yeah, and I mean, obviously, this comes from um, farmers are very concerned with yields and, and uh, productivity and stuff, um, which totally makes sense. Like, um, obviously, that's like a, a, a capitalist mindset, uh, yeah. but we also have to eat, you know, like uh, if the mushrooms don't fruit, then, uh, you know, we can't go to market and we eat a lot of shiitake. So we also like just eat less of that stuff. So um, so I understand where that comes from, but uh, I think our wager with forest farming has been that 
we really need to try and try and try new things like the way things have been running for um you know 300 years uh in this area uh hasn't hasn't been working <laughs> simply put uh right. and yeah. uh so this is one effort um to try something that's different um that's maybe not motivated by capitalist economics um and a colonial mentality yeah and hopefully it works out <laughs> yeah i mean and right that's that's it where i guess generally i mean maybe in the future we would experiment with doing some indoor space just to try it um because i personally i've never done that before so it would be interesting to see um and i think for folks who are trying to really scale up it it, there is some sense in doing something indoors because you can really dial it in and you can maximize the amount of space that you have for the amount of heal that you're able to get from um, being able to manipulate your environment in such a way that you're able to get, a, you know, like you can calculate exactly how much you're going to get. And I guess really, yeah, the point is just that we're trying to sort of move away from having this artificial space that is that takes a lot of energy to um, create, especially where we are. I mean, thinking about um, climate controlling an indoor space um, to be able to produce mushrooms in the dead of summer, you know, where it's like, you know, 100, get, gets up to like 115 sometimes, like 110 degrees. Um, it sort of goes against the path that we're trying to go down, which is to take ourselves out of that cycle of constant resource extraction and constant just like cultivation or like artificial cultivation to be able to like make as much money as possible in the shortest amount of time. I feel like, yeah, just trying to sort of see it in a different way and show others that it can be done in a different way. And also that like, yeah, of course it's not gonna be as profitable, but I feel like the process in figuring it out and trying it is worth the setbacks. Like for example, recently this this last spring, we didn't have as much um, shiitake yields as we thought we would have. And we're not really totally sure why that is but our reishi did really well. And we're still, yeah, we're still troubleshooting why that happened. And um, if we were operating a completely indoor space, I think it would be pretty simple to figure out, okay, well, you know, we didn't have this humidity or like our air conditioning unit broke down for this mm -hmm. one week, or, you know, uh, we tried this one strain that maybe wasn't as viable as like a different strain. Um, but I think if there's something about that, that it forces you to really look at your environment and be, yeah, forced to be more connected to where you're at and the kinds of species that are growing. Like, for example, we're going on sweet gums and oaks. And so we're starting to think, okay, well, is it, do the sweet gums maybe not last as long? Um, do they maybe last two years or three years rather than four years? Um, are the oaks better to be growing on rather than sweet gums? Um, and that's all being figured out through trial and error. Um, but it feels like important long-term information to be gathering, albeit it might be frustrating in the moment <laughs> to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why isn't why aren't they fruiting as much as they were last year or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild to me that someone would question uh, growing why, why you would grow a thing in the place where it naturally grows. Yeah. And, and I mean, to be fair, like, you know, shiitake not from here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reishi is, but, but it does quite well in the, in the, the woods here. Yeah, but then, you know, we're going to markets and there are these other growers that are growing indoors and they have a bunch of mushrooms and they're selling, you know, they, they're selling as much as they possibly can get out into the 
the market. And for us, we're like, oh shit, we, <laughs> we don't really have that much to offer this spring because we're, we're, we're more at the whims of what's going on in the world around us than if we were operating in an indoor space, which like, it, it makes sense that people would choose that because it's, it's a lot, it's something you can count on. And especially if you're, you're counting on it for your survival or your, your livelihood, then like, it does make sense if you have that startup capital that you would decide to do it that way instead. Yeah. Yeah. If y'all didn't like, um, if like, if someone were growing or cultivating like shiitake or like reishi logs, like in the forest where they lived, what, like what, like what can the yields be like on that? Like if someone was just like growing mushrooms for their own consumption, like what, what, what would that be like for someone? So um, I think what th there's a really good PDF online from Cornell that I think his name Steve Gabriel put out. He's a professor there with the extension there. Um, and it has like, if someone is getting involved in growing on logs specifically, it's kind of like the book. It's like a 40 page PDF and it has so much, so much good information. Um, but I think you'll see there and many other places a claim that um, each log per year will produce about a pound of shiitakes. That's for sh just for shiitake. I think we've found that to be fairly accurate. Um, and in, in some cases low, but for, for instance, reishi, um, it's going to be much lower and reishi as you grow it in, uh, on the ground, it, it loves, like, it wants like 90% humidity, 95% humidity. It, the longevity of the log is up for question in terms of like, do you get termites? We get termites here. So, um, the longevity <laughs> is up for question, but what we have found is depending on the size of the log, you can get quite large flushes. I'm not sure if we've ever actually weighed them because we don't, we don't take those to market. Um, we, we mostly just give them out to friends to make medicine with. But I would say even one, yeah, without being able to quantify it and partially not really wanting to, to, uh, to like mediate everything through like a measurement, it's absolutely worth it. Even if you only have one reishi log, you can make quite a lot of tincture or tea with what that would produce for one year. You could probably expect a couple of caps minimum. They might be quite large caps. Yeah. I personally haven't found a rhyme or reason to why they are bigger or smaller. Yeah. It's really fun. Like, even if you're not interested in growing on a bigger scale or like feeding your family or whatever it is and you just want to try it and because you're simply interested in it i think that it's so worth it to invest in the startup costs of getting yourself a drill bit or something that goes on an angle grinder and inoculating a couple logs putting them in the shade and looking at that pdf and just getting going on it because yeah it's just it's a really interesting thing to take part in and it's so fun and it can be really rewarding and it might lead you to starting to connect with your local mycological club or connecting with other people that are growing mushrooms and yeah it can be really rewarding so yeah I just I like to encourage people that might be maybe they're listening to this and they're like oh well I wouldn't want to do that like a large scale or maybe it just seems like too complicated it's pretty simple yeah um, I would yeah. I would in terms of like investment I would definitely say that and and we had the experience in New Orleans specifically um where this worked very well would be to to team up you know there, there's other people out there either through uh local mycological club um some regions have like really robust robust ones and might you know have likely have people who are already growing um so you wouldn't have to buy any kind of like drill drill bit um the like plunger things um and yeah doing it together um it's a it's a, like a really great social activity we do kind of like a 
a festival of sorts every year when we do the inoculation mm -hmm. time and people kind of look forward to it. Um, and we're all like working together and not too hard, you know, um, just like it's a it's a really fun time. And, and, uh, and I, I would encourage especially like building a culture around that can be really rewarding. And if you are just on your own listening to the podcast and like really want to grow mushrooms, but you don't know anyone who's interested in it. Um, that's, I mean, that's how I started. Um, me and my roommate were the only two people I knew that were interested in it. And there's like, they sell um, inoculated dowels online, which you just basically just drill into logs and you hammer into the log. Um, so it doesn't, you don't need like a whole gang of people inoculating, you know, you can absolutely do it on your own as well. Cool. Um, I, I know there's this, uh, this book slash PDF that y'all have referenced that um, uh, lays out the process probably pretty, pretty well, but would, would y'all mind kind of just breaking down like what the process of like, like how would you set up a, um, uh, like a log for growing mushrooms, just like the kind of like a breakdown of the steps. So um, first you're, you're sourcing your, your log. So that could look like a lot of different things. You could be felling the tree your, yourself. You could be um, maybe talking to a tree company that sometimes has extra logs. There could be a storm and you just find a log on the side of the road. Uh, any of those are, are fine. The recommendation is, and we have found this to be true, that you want the, the tree to be dormant um, and, and not like already healthy, you wouldn't want it to be already infected with, with some other fungal pathogen. Like if it's mm -hmm. living, it's already has something, some other mycelium running through it. Because otherwise that would outcompete what you're trying to inoculate it with. Right. Yeah, okay. So you, you want something healthy. So let's just go with from felling, which is what we do. Fell the tree, bucket up. Uh, so like cut it into a, like a manageable size so for shock for shiitakes for instance uh, we find that somewhere between like a four inch and eight inch diameter uh, I feel like once it gets wide, wider than that it starts to get cumbersome because you have to move them around if you're forcing them or but if you're leaving them just in your backyard and not not ever touching them you don't have to worry about that quite as much but just you don't want to like you know, hurt your back when you're um, working on them. So you cut them up into what's called bolts. Then you let them sit. This is something that's like kind of debated. Um, some people will tell you that you need to inoculate the next day or as soon as humanly possible from felling. Some people will tell you um, three to four weeks waiting to to basically let the tree kind of fully die and make it so it's um, it's not going to challenge your mycelium that you're putting into the log. Um, okay. We've tried kind of all of that, and it doesn't seem to matter in our case, dealing with oaks and sweet gums. We've inoculated the next day, and we've inoculated four weeks later. So long as it's not fully, you're, you're starting to see like other fungal growth on the log, uh, you'll be good. And even if you do have a, a log that has like, you know, like we were saying, already has fungal pathogen in it, or you fell it and then you wait too long and you see that like on the edge, often you'll see like um, where you cut the log might start to become black. Even if that's happening, it will probably be fine. You just might not get as long of a yield because basically after you inoculate them, they're competing for space inside the log. So inoculation looks like um, you basically uh, either produce or order spawn. Likely, if you're listening to this, you're ordering spawn. There's a number of good places to order from. We use Field and Forest for what it's worth. Um, they don't, don't necessarily endorse them, but what's cool about them is on their website, they have a ton of information about each of their strains and how it performs and um, like what temperatures it does well in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. 
the, and they're like kind of they like the U.S. shiitake industry was kind of built around what they started in the 70s. Um, uh, but there's also if you're in the south, um, there's Musher Mountain uh, which run by Trad Cotter, um, who also a good place. There's lots of places. But the, oh. so you put the spawn into the log um, by drilling and then plunging in the, the spawn. Um, what is the seal spawn? It so, so the spawn is um, either sawdust or grain that a company, in this case, Field and Forest or Mushroom Mountain, has inoculated with a strain of a fungus. Okay. So it, it comes in a bag and they're, they're plastic bags and they they sort of, they seal them but um okay <laughs> can you start that one over <laughs> i'm like wait how do i say this but they're they come in these bags and these plastic bags and you just it looks sort of like a brick uh like a fuzzy creamy brick that's all of the mycelium that's colonized that sawdust or okay brand or whatever it is green and so um you just open up your bag and you take a handful of it and you break it up so that it's um sort of mixed up and then you'll take your plunger which is just it's like a handheld um it looks like a it's like a, a little a short dowel and you plunge it and it captures the spawn in a compartment that is at the base of the plunger and then you pull it up it's sort of like the way a syringe works or something <laughs> so you pull it up and then you put it on your hole that you've drilled out out of your log and then you plunge it into the hole okay and then once you've plunged it into that hole it fills up the whole hole and you'll sort of like tap the top of it to make sure that it's um, all the way full because sometimes your plunger might not capture all of the amount of space that's um, like the compartment at the end of the plunger. And so it might be, be kind of loose at the top. So you just kind of like tap it to make sure it's all the way full. And then what we do is we heat up gulf wax in a crock pot and we use these little foam applicator brushes, you know, like, like the kids arts and crafts ones. Yeah. And yeah. We, we have found that those are the best to uh, <laughs> seal logs because they capture a lot of the wax that we're going to be using to seal the um, hole. And um, you can you can just kind of dab it and then the wax comes out really well. And you want to make sure the wax that you're using is hot enough. We use gulf wax, um, but it's hot enough that it's clear when you're applying it to your hole to um, seal it up. Because if it's not clear, it'll, it will be opaque, and it just means that it's not hot enough. And so it sometimes works, but often what happens is you put it on opaque, and it kind of seems like it's done the job, but then you wait a few hours or a couple of days, and that whole piece that you sealed up um, will just come kind of crack and pop off okay. and so you just want to make sure it's hot enough that it penetrates um, that hole and makes a good seal and you just kind of dab on your little applicator and then and seal it up okay and what is the what is the wax like what is it keeping in like what what's the what's happening inside that hole um so it protects the spawn from drying out is is probably the primary thing that it's doing and it protects from fungal competitors so one that we often are concerned with is trichoderma or trichoderma um, which is like a blue green um, mold and also it will to some extent protect from getting predated on by birds and rodents um, but i think that they, they eventually will get through it. Um, the goal is to basically, you're giving your team, you know, your your fungus the best chance at digesting the log um, or, or what a lot of people call colonizing the log. Um, uh, basically, as soon as you put the spawn into the log, 
it's going to start moving through the wood and digesting the wood. Um, okay. And once it has completely taken up the wood, uh, or again, fully colonized the wood, uh, that's when it's it's ready to start fruiting. Okay, so it's like, like, and you know, maybe everyone who's listening knows this, but it, it, it's like the, the fruiting body or like the, the, the piece that we eat is like very set. Like what, what, what is the, like the body of the, the fungus? Like, like what's it like, so, what's it like inside there? Yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> it's, it's mycelium. Um, mm-hmm. it, people are probably familiar with this. I think oftentimes people uh, uh, assume that mycelium is just like the, in a, a forest floor, like the mycorrhizal network, but it's also the, the body of the, the fungus that's, um, in this case, we grow what's called saprobic mushrooms. So, uh, or saprobic fungi, they eat dead stuff. Um, and they also are made up of mycelium. And then you're right, the, the mushroom is the, the fruiting body, the sexual organ, um, and what produces the spores, which will then go on to um, germinate on whatever uh, surface that that species requires. Yeah, and so when you're getting those bags in the mail, you know, and you're breaking up the spawn to inoculate um, with your plunger, that's the body. Um, That's, you're breaking up the body, basically, and you're putting it in the log, and then it's doing the same thing that it did to the sawdust or the grain um, where it's moving through the log. And so I guess to be able to picture it, you'll see it sort of when you get it, if you get it in that bag form, um, you can sort of see how it moves through and clumps and, you know, that particular strain anyway. Cool. That is very weird and freaky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should... If you're interested, uh, I highly recommend trying to um, or getting some and, you know, breaking it up with your your fingers is a really interesting sensation. It's sort of like cool and smooth, but also has a lot of texture to it. Um, and the way it breaks apart, it's sort of fibrous. Cool. Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds like a freaky texture experience. I I want to try it. Cool. And so then, like you, like the once the the logs are fully colonized, they start producing these fruiting fruiting bodies. Um, what like what or <laughs> uh, I feel like I always ask funny leading questions because I like vaguely know the answers. But like what like what kind of conditions do they then need to like produce fruiting bodies like? I imagine a lot of moisture or like you have to water them or. Yeah. So it depends, you know, on your climate and where you're at, but you have to keep a certain level of shade and humidity in the fruiting yard. And so for us, we've had to experiment with shade cloth and trying to grow up certain trees to make more shade or less shade. And so that's that's something that folks who are listening would have to figure out based on where they're at um, and their their particular climate and situation. But um, if you want, for us, before we're about to go to a market, um, about ten days prior to wanting fully formed mushroom to take to market, we do what we call um, force fruiting. Um, also, we call it dunking. So we have a cattle trough and we put um we have group what we call groups so every year we'll label um group one group two group three and it will help help keep us organized to know which groups that we've fruited and which ones we haven't and so let's say we have group one so let's say it's 12 logs and so we put all of our logs that we've stacked um, in like log cabin style um, stacks. Is that what you call it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just to maintain aeration and um, make it so that they don't get um, too uh, crowded out. And so we'll take each one of those, put them in our cattle trough, 
that's filled up with water. And then we sort of weigh it down because once the mycelium moves through them, the logs start to get more pithy because the mycelium are eating through that wood. And so um, the logs will get lighter and lighter weight as you go on, but also wood floats in general. So, but we just have to weigh those down and then we keep them in overnight, usually around 24 hours. And they have to be, they don't have to be like totally fully submerged, but generally, yes, like submerge them. And then we take the weights off. And some people will do it in really like cute ways where they have like, what does that guy do where he puts them down the river and we go? Oh, there's a few places where they're like super picturesque, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, you know, they'll put them in a creek and they'll have a little (laughs) section, uh, roped off or whatever and it's just like which is actually you know if you have that that is the perfect place because if you think about how shiitake evolved you know that we're basically mimicking like a cool spring flood or rain you know a, a heavy rain event like actually one of the heaviest fruitings we've had was like r- the week after hurricane ida because it was such a disturbance event and that's basically wow. what we're trying to mimic um so yeah these these people that have these like gorgeous farms they put them in the creek or or a pond or something sometimes yeah (laughs) but so we'll take them out 24 hours later and then we lean them up against um sort of a makeshift shelf type thing and make it so that there's enough space between each of them so they're not fruiting into each other and we just wait about 10 days um, and sometimes the individual mushrooms will go at different time scales, but generally they'll all fruit around the same time and they'll all be developed around the same time. And then we harvest and go to market and then we put in the next group. Cool. That, I mean, that, that whole process sounds kind of like wacky and ridiculous, but in, you know, like a really fun way. Like, um, I, 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 I could grow them like inside where I live, but I live in a desert, so we we be pretty hard too. <laughs> um, although we do, so it's wild. We do have these like um, like during the monsoons. The uh, if you go hiking up in like really rocky mountains, the like all of the dried lichen because there is dried lichen will like flesh out and get like like carpety and like poofy for like. A day or two and then it like dries up again it's it's weird well well yeah. yeah also i was just thinking of your cave situation i feel like i've heard of these caves in tucson <laughs> a horse fly yeah yeah okay good yeah <laughs> it's, it's like murderous horse fly trying to get in a trailer right now oh yeah um yeah but anyway <laughs> cool um so the other thing that I wanted to have y'all talk about is um, y'all put out an almanac, right? Uh, yeah, so we're we're part of the the group Lobelia Commons, which um, puts out that, or some members of that group put out um, the Earthbound Farmers Almanac, um, and are going into our fourth year doing that. Well, what what like what kind of almanac is like? Does it have specialized information like what information is in this so um it's primarily um uh land-based knowledge uh would be kind of like what it uh, specializes in um it's like not necessarily um focused on farming per se but more skills and um thoughts around being on land and and uh what that means in our current climate um and i think pulling on a urge to build new cultures of being on land kind of like obviously there's uh, a legacy of radicals dating back to of course um you know the 60s with back to the land, but, but trying to, to forge something um, that grapples with 
the world we're in today um, with, of course, climate change, trying to sharpen a anti-colonial, while also simultaneously uh, trying to build this culture that would sort of fill a void in some ways because there's been so much damage done by genocide and um, just death, uh, colonization and and settlership. Um, so people might not have something to, like a, a, a knowledge base to pull from, whether, whether or not they're uh, indigenous, um, settler, um, black, or, you know, what have you, living on Turtle Island, um, we are unfortunately fairly dispossessed um, in, in a fairly general way um, from ecological knowledge that is really critical um, for the world we're entering. Yeah, cool. Um, as just maybe like a, like, yeah, I guess like what, what would be kind of like a sample of like information that, or like kinds of information that might might be in there? So something to note is that we're, um, we just put out our 2023 almanac and um, we can like link in the show notes where to get those. Um, our emergent goods is uh, distributing it for us, but we also, are putting a call out for submissions for 2024. And um, I feel like this is a good moment to sort of list um, the kinds of submissions that we're looking for. And it also summarizes past editions and the kind of content that is in there. Um, so anti-colonial histories and futures, critical agroecology, Recipes from the land, stories from your neighbors, climate change noticing, traditions to uplift or destroy, farm notes, and just, I mean, really whatever you feel like is relevant and um, close to you in this time and what would ring true for others and inspire and uplift others um, in the moment that we're in. Yeah, um, the, the entire... Um, first three and for the future, everyone we put out in the future can be found at um, earthbound.farm. Um, a lovely collective mem member just uh, made this site finally. <laughs> so, so now you can just look at them online uh, and get tons of examples. Um, uh, if people listening to this because they're interested in mushrooms particularly, um, they might be curious uh, to check out the 2021 issue, which has some uh, like a detailed how to uh, grow mushrooms using uh, coffee grounds, growing oyster mushrooms on coffee grounds. And this is something that the person who wrote this, who also is the person who uh, made that lovely website, actually, uh, <laughs> they uh, were growing quite a lot of oyster mushrooms just with the coffee grounds that they were keeping um, from their coffee habit. Um, and there's also in that one a um, a nice introduction to foraging to try and um, kind of abate the general mycophobia that uh, exists uh, in our culture. Uh, but there's all kinds of stuff. There's recipes, like I think that one has like a, a, a recipe for a fig cake, which um, I've never had, but sounds really, really good. Oh, wow. um, there's cool like almanac -y information, like, you know, it, you know, for those outside of the uh, Gulf Coast, New Orleans area, some of the almanac information isn't quite as um, maybe pertinent, but I think it, it's a, maybe uh, an inspiration for people to start noticing those types of uh, things in their life. Um, and on that uh, almanac, those almanac pages, the monthly kind of like phase of the moon, um, day length, that types of things. There's also, we include each year um, farm notes from a different farm or um, you know, nursery project or what have you. Um, the most recent one, um, I'm a big fan of. It's someone who um, doesn't have, doesn't like own land, doesn't have like a cool urban farm, 
but is really just like in love with the world and loves noticing birds and, um, you know, goes hunting. And so is, you know, following elk and, you know, is trying to grow things and moves all over. He's like a dispossessed person that just rents, you know, where they can. And, um, and there's, there's a piece in that, um, the 2023 almanac about basically how to um, develop this type of practice. And it's very witty. And I, I just really love that piece. It came in at like the 11th hour and yeah, really appreciate that piece. Um, mm. Recommend. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm definitely going to check out the old earthbound uh, almanacs. Cool. Well, that brings us about to our time for the day. Um, is there any anything else y'all want to plug before we go, um, or any last minute last minute thoughts on on things that we didn't cover that you'd love to love to mention? Um, no, yeah, I think I, I, I would just um, once again encourage people if, if you're a writer or like don't fashion yourself a writer, but might have some thoughts about it growing or whatever, just like really, really, really feel free to um, send us a pitch. Um, doesn't have to be very long. Just give us like an idea of what you want to write. Um, you know, worst case, we're like, can you flesh this out a little bit more and tell us what you're thinking? Um, but you can email us at lobeliacommons at protonmail.com. Um, and uh, if you're not inclined to write or anything like that, but maybe you're a photographer or um, or illustrator, um, send us some examples um, that you know, we, we would love to include, we, we like always need illustrations and photos. Um, and if none of the above, but you are really interested in it as a project, um, we send um, bulk uh, copies of the Almanac, like entire boxes to groups um, all over, all over the place. Um, and uh we just ask that people cover the shipping and the, the, the cost of the printing. Um, and then uh, in good faith, we let people sell it for, you know, to benefit whatever cause that they are like locally interested in supporting. So this oftentimes is like a local food autonomy project, maybe like a pipeline resistance thing, um, the, the uh, campaign to stop Cop City um, uh, can, be, can be kind of all, all kinds of stuff. Cool. Great. Um, well, we will, we'll link to all those things in the show notes and thanks y'all so much for coming on and teaching us about mushroom farming. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go grow some mushrooms and then tell us about it. But also tell people about the podcast. You can support this podcast by telling people about it. You can support this podcast by talking about it on social media, by rating and reviewing, doing whatever the nameless algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Our Patreon helps pay for things like transcriptions or our lovely audio editor bursts as well as going to support our publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Uh, we put out this podcast and a few other podcasts, including my other podcast, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, a monthly podcast of anarchist literature, and the Anarcho-Geek Power Hour, which is the podcast for people who love movies and hate cops. And we would like to shout out uh, some of those patrons in particular. Thank you, Trickster. Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Paige, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Cat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. We seriously couldn't do this without y'all. I hope everyone is doing as well as they can with everything that's happening, and we'll talk to you soon.